0: you spooky listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Morbid Curiosity, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Nicole. I'll be taking you through some of the most heinous, shocking, and morbid crimes, including, of course, the paranormal. Listener discretion is advised. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram at morbid period curiosity period podcast. Where you can find photos related to our cases, including crime scene photos on occasion, of course, with the exception of postmortem photos. Thank you for tuning in. Enjoy. hello everybody welcome back episode 19 today okay i picked a cool one i think um we're gonna talk about the axemen of new orleans and it was from like um 1918 to about 1919 um so yeah um as early as 1911 though so we'll get into it we'll get into it but grab your snacks grab a drink Sit down or do whatever you're gonna be doing. I don't know, but let's enjoy the episode. Let's go. Today's resources are from Wikipedia and TroyTaylorBooks.blogspot.com. All right, guys. So if you know anything about this case at all, you already kind of know. And if not, I'm about to I'm about to ruin it for you. But this is unsolved, so this is gonna be an unsolved case on you know our podcast. So pretty much um the axman of new orleans was an american serial killer active in new orleans louisiana and surrounding communities including gretna i don't know why i had a brain fart gretna from may 1918 to october 1919 now press reports during the height of public panic about the killings mentioned similar murders as early as 1911 um But recent researchers have called these reports into question. Now, the Axeman, of course, never identified, and all the murders remain unsolved. He mainly targeted Italian immigrants and Italian Americans. So, this kind of leaves the possibility open about the killings, and maybe they were racially motivated. Don't know. The killer was never caught, and this was never really conclusively proven. So, yeah. So, let's get into it. So, let's dig into the background a little bit, shall we? So, um, the victims were usually attacked with an axe, which often belonged to the victims themselves, which sucks. (laughs) Um, In most cases, a panel on the back door of a home, it was removed by a chisel, uh, which along with the panel was left on the floor near the door. That was, for some reason, giving me tongue-twister moments. Um, So, the intruder then attacked one or more of the residents with either an axe or a straight razor. Uh, The crimes were not motivated by robbery, and the perpetrator never removed items from any of the victims' homes. The majority of the axemen's victims were Italian immigrants or Italian-Americans, leading many to believe that the crimes were, you know, ethnically... Motivated, or racially motivated. Um, many media outlets sensationalized this aspect of the crimes. Um, even suggested maybe the mafia involvement, despite lack of evidence. Um, the only thing with that is, and I'll probably repeat this later. Uh, from what I have read, mafia, the mafia there, they don't mess with women. And we do have quite a few female victims. So that was kind of thrown out later, um, but we'll get to it. So, some crime analysts have suggested that the killings were related to sex and that the murderer was perhaps maybe like a sadist, specifically seeking female victims. Um, There's a criminologist, Colin and Damon Wilson. Um, They, like, hypothesize that the um, Axeman killed male victims only when they obstructed his attempts to murder women. Now, supported by cases in which the women of the household was murdered and not the man, a less plausible theory is that the killer committed the murders in an attempt to promote jazz music, which is crazy, but it worked. It worked. Um, Now, suggested by a letter attributed to the killer in which he stated that he would have spared the lives of those who actually played jazz music in their homes, and the axeman of course was not caught or identified and his crime spree stopped as mysteriously as it had started. Um, the murderer's identity remains unknown to this day, although various possible identifications of varying possibility have been proposed. Now, March 13, 1919, a letter, um, Purporting to be from the AxeMen was published in the newspapers saying that he would kill again at 15 minutes past midnight on the night of March 19th, but would spare anyone who played jazz music in their home. That night, all of New Orleans dance halls, they were filled to max cap, and professional and amateur bands played jazz at all parties, at hundreds of houses around town, and there were no murders that night. Um, so, if you look up, you know, like, the Axemen of New Orleans, you'll see that they even came out with a sheet music book. Um, it's kind of like a ward off, I guess, like a, it's warding off the Axemen, really. And that's how they, um, actually marketed it, too. So, they have made that as well. So, yeah, everybody was, uh partying until they couldn't party no more pretty much and probably nervous and yeah but nobody died that night so let's uh let's get to the letter that the axmen actually sent um March 13, 1919. Shall we? Let's let's read over that. So the letter starts. It says location, right? Hell, comma <laughs> March 13, 1919. And then it starts off as Esteemed Mortal. They have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible. Even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axemen. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, They have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am. For it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the axemen. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure that the police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you New Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am. But I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now, to be exact, At 12.15, earliest time, on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared to whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus. Sorry, guys, I was going so well. I think that's how you say. It. Okay, uh, let me get back into my my um, character. <laughs> and it is about time I leave your earthly home. I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go with well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fantasy. The Axemen. And scene. Okay, yeah, sorry, guys. I kind of, like, fucked that word up really bad. <laughs> I was trying so hard. Okay, so that was a letter that was sent, um, which is, it's like, I don't know. I don't know what to think about it. What do you guys think about it? Go on, go on Facebook. We have the Facebook group now, Morbid Curiosity, a true crime podcast. No, we are not Morbid with Ala- uh, Ashley and Elena. Everybody always thinks so, but I am not. So, it's just me. It's just Nicole, you know. We don't even have the same logo, but it's fine. Um, yeah, so go on Facebook. Let me know what you think. Um, look up the podcast name. You can find us. Uh, same logo, whatever. Um, also, you can go on Instagram as well. Let me know what you think about the letter. I feel like... I feel like... I don't know. They refer to themselves as a spirit, and they talk about you know like them not being a human being and a demon. So I don't know. I don't know what to think about it. But we'll move on. We'll move on. Um, yeah. So let's let's go on to the next section. All right. So if you haven't figured it out yet, this is more like a um a background, and then we'll get into. What happened to the aftermath and all that kind of stuff. So, um, crime writer Colin Wilson, he speculates the Axeman could have been Joseph Momfrey, um, a man shot to death in Los Angeles in December 1920 um, by the widow of Mike Pepitone, uh, which was like the Axman's last known victim. So, Wilson's theory had been widely repeated in other true crime books and websites. However, a true crime writer, um, Michael Newton, uh, searched New Orleans and Los Angeles' public, police, and court records, as well as newspaper archives, and failed to find any evidence of a man with the name Joseph Mumphrey. Or a similar name. Didn't have to be exactly that name, but just someone similar. Um, so, couldn't find anything of a person with that name or a similar name having been assaulted or killed in L.A. So, we don't know. We don't know, right? Um, but Newton, uh, was also not able to find any information that Miss Pepitone, um, which was, like, uh, identified in some sources as Esther Albano, Albano, um, who claimed to be Pepitone's widow. Um, couldn't find anything about, you know, being arrested, tried or convicted for such a crime, you know, because she shot a man in, in the street <laughs> um, or indeed had been in California. So Newton notes that Momfrey was not a um, unusual surname in New Orleans at the time of the crimes. It appears that there actually may have been an individual named Joseph Mumfrey or Mumfrey, Mumfrey, Mom or Mum, either way you want to say it, um, in New Orleans who had been, who had a criminal history and who had probably been connected with organized crime. However, you know, local records for the period are not extensive enough to confirm any of that or positively identify the individual. So Wilson's explanation is pretty much like an urban legend. And there is no more evidence now on the identity of the killer. Um, You know, same as there was then. There's no evidence of whoever it is. So, we have no idea. Hopefully, he's dead. That's all we can say. Now, two of the alleged early victims, like, remember when we said earlier, the earliest in the newspapers was, like, 1911? So, um... It was like an Italian couple, and do not come for me if I can't say this name because I know I can't. Even though I looked it up, I know I can't. We're gonna try it anyway. (laughs) Um, their name. Bear with me. Drum roll here. Um, Shia Ambri. She. She Iambra. She She, Iambra. I feel like that's how you say it. Yeah. Laugh at me, if you will. I don't really care. Um, But they were shot by an intruder in their lower 9th Ward home in the early morning hours of May 16, 1912. The male, the husband, survived while the wife had died. Um, Now, in newspaper accounts, the prime suspect is referred to by the name of Momfrey more than once. Now, while radically different, of course, than the Axman's usual you know, MO, um, if Joseph Mumfrey was indeed the Axeman, the couple may, you know, may well have been early victims of a future serial killer. So maybe he was experimenting. That was his first time he decided, uh, maybe I want a gun. I don't know. We don't know. We don't know. But according to scholar Richard Warner, the chief suspect, um, in the crimes was Frank Doc. Mumphrey, who was alive 1875 to 1921, who also used the alias Leon Joseph Monfrey or Manfrey. Coincidence? I think not. I don't know. I can't really say. But, very, very weird that, you know, the last killing was 1919 and this. And it stopped, just you know, cold turkey just quit. So, I'm assuming that the murderer had to have died because there's like no other, from what I know, anyway. There, it's not like he traveled somewhere else and started doing it there because there was no like big cross investigation or newspapers of somebody killing people with axes anywhere else. So, yeah, anyway. So, let's talk murder. Okay, so the Axemen had a whopping 12 murder victims. All, like, all the same M.O. Like, you could tell it was the same person. There was no, like, question besides the earlier two that um, are not included in this 12. So, if the earlier two was connected, we... He, You know, that person would have killed 14 people. And that's crazy. So, let's get into it. Um, Let's start off with the Maggios. So, Joseph Maggio was an Italian grocer. um, And his wife, her name was Catherine. um, They were attacked on May twenty third, 1918. While sleeping alongside each other at their home on the corner of Upper Line and Magnolia Streets where they conducted a a bar room and grocery. Um, The killer broke into the home and then proceeded to cut the couple's throats with a straight razor. Now, upon leaving, he bashed their heads in with an axe. I wouldn't say in. Let me me rephrase that. He bashed their heads with an axe. So, whopped them upside the head pretty good. Now, perhaps in order to conceal the real cause of death, now, Joseph, the husband, actually survived the attack But died within minutes after being discovered by his brothers. So, like, maybe if he was found just, you know, a little bit earlier, he may or may not have survived. It's a 50-50. I don't know. Um, Jake and Andrew, which is the brothers. Now, in the apartment, law enforcement agents found uh, bloody clothes of the murderer. As he had obviously changed into a clean set of clothes before fleeing the scene. Now, a complete search of the premises was not completed by police after the bodies were removed. Why? Why? Why is all I can say? Why? Sometimes, you know, they just don't do the job. Anyway, so once the bodies were removed, they were like, eh, whatever. So um, now, later though, a bloody razor was found on the lawn of a neighboring property. Police ruled out robbery as motivation for the attacks as money and valuables were pretty much left in plain sight and they weren't stolen. So they were just like, okay, not robbery. Now, the razor used to kill the couple was found to belong to Andrew Maggio, the brother of the deceased who conducted a barbershop on Camp Street. Now, his employee, Esteban Torres, told police that Maggio had removed the razor from his shop two days prior to the murder, explaining that he wanted to have a nick honed from the blade. So he wanted to get his blade fixed, if you guys didn't really catch all that. Um, Maggio, who lived in the adjoining apartment to his brother's residence, discovered his slain brother and sister-in-law roughly about two hours after the gruesome attacks had occurred. Now, upon hearing strange groaning noises through the wall, that's kind of like he was like, oh, what's going on? Went over there and looked. Now, Maggio blamed his failure to hear any noise related to the attacks that occurred in the early morning hours on his intoxicated state. Um, Pretty much, he was too drunk because he went um, out, you know, for a night of celebration prior to his departure to join the Navy. And police, however, were nonetheless surprised that he failed to hear the intruder as he made a forced entry into the home. Andrew Maggio became the police chief's prime suspect in the crime, yet was released after investigators were unable to break down his statement, as well as his account of the unknown man who was supposedly seen lurking near the residence prior to the murders. I ain't gonna be pointing no fingers, um, but that kind of suspicious. That's kind of suspicious. Right? Right? I find that suspicious. I'm sorry. You don't hear someone breaking into your brother and your sister-in-law's home that's right next to you. You don't hear that. You don't, you know, probably hear the struggle or whatever. And like, Really? Really? I, I just, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Um, anyway, anyway, uh, let's talk about Catherine. So, of course, that was Joseph's wife. Um, now her throat was cut so deeply that, uh, obviously it was, she was almost decapitated. We'll just say, um, unlike Joseph, Catherine did not survive long after the attack, if at all, and died before her husband's brothers found them. So there goes, there goes my brain again. Why did she have it worse than he did? Like she was almost decapitated and the husband was not. So does that mean that they were more out for the wife and Joseph was just there? Like we were saying earlier? We're gonna we're gonna have questions all through this podcast episode. I hope you know that. <laughs> but it's just weird. Like the brother didn't hear anything. And the brother that lived next door, the brother who was killed didn't really like I mean, he had his throat sliced, sure, but, like, he wasn't almost decapitated. That's just a little suspicious. little suspicious on that one. What do you guys think? Let's, uh, let's go back to Facebook and Instagram. Go look up the podcast name, uh, Morbid, Morbid Curiosity. I don't know why I almost forgot. Morbid Curiosity, a true crime podcast. Join the Facebook group if you want to. No pressure. And tell me what you think about the episode. I'm curious to hear you guys, like, um, theories and, like, thoughts and stuff. So, let's go to the second murder. Number two. All right, number two. So, Louis Besmer and his mistress, Harriet Lowe, they were attacked in the early morning hours of June 27th, 1918, in the quarters at the back of his grocery, which was located on the corner of Dorgenois. I can't ever say that word. I tried, guys. Look, I ain't want to sit here and re-record a thousand times just because I can't say a word right. Even though I looked it up, I'm dyslexic. What, 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 can, I, what can I say? Um, <laughs> and La Harp Streets. So, um, Bessemer was struck with a hatchet above his right temple, which possibly could have had a skull fracture. You know, it resulted in that. Um, Lowe was hacked over her left ear, pretty much knocked her out. She was found unconscious when the police arrived at the scene. Um, they were found shortly after seven in the morning by John Zanko, which was like a delivery driver or a delivery guy for the grocery. Um, now Zanko found both Bessemer and Lowe in the puddle of their own blood, bleeding from their heads. The axe, which had belonged to Bessemer himself, was found in the bathroom of the apartment. Besemer later stated that, you know, he had been sleeping when he was bashed with a hatchet. Almost immediately, police arrested a potential suspect, Louis Uvacon, like I said, don't come for me, a, who was a 41-year-old African-American man who had been employed in the store, in the grocery store, weeks before the attack, like a week before the attack, excuse me. Now, of course, um, there was no evidence to have proved that this man done anything, but they arrested him nonetheless, stating that he had offered conflicting accounts of his whereabouts on the morning of the attack. Now, shortly after the attempted murder, Lowe stated that she remembered having been attacked by a mulatto man. Mulatto? Mulatto man? Yeah, her statement was discounted by police due to her, um... Disillusioned state. Now, robbery was said to be the only possible explanation for the attacks. Nothing was removed from that apartment in the grocery store. Like, above or whatever. There was nothing gone. Nothing moved. Nothing taken. Nothing. So. Now, um, the man that they arrested, Lewis. He was later released as police were unable to gather sufficient evidence to hold him accountable for the crimes. Uh, Media attention soon turned to Besemer himself as a series of letters written in German, Russian, and Yiddish were discovered in a trunk at that man's home. Now, police suspected that Besemer was a German spy. And government officials began a full investigation of his potential esponge. Espionage. I like how I said esponge. Espionage. Now, weeks later, after going in and out of conscien- consciousness, let. Okay, 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 okay. Hold on, guys. Let me go ahead and say I have re-recorded this part. I couldn't even tell you how many times I got word vomit today. So, just please bear with me. Just laugh at me and move on. You know, that's all I'm asking. Let's just laugh at me and continue, okay? (laughs) So, Harriet Lowe, um, she told police that Besemer was in fact a German spy, which led to his immediate arrest. Now, two days later, Besemer was released and two lead investigators of the case were demoted due to unacceptable police work. Now... Bessemer was once again arrested in August 1918 after Harriet, who had laid, you know, in the hospital, because she had it worse, um, she was dying in Charity Hospital after a failed surgery because after the attack, one side of her face was paralyzed and she wanted to have it fixed. They botched her surgery, let's just say that, and she actually um, died. So, um, yeah, so she stated that it was he who had attacked her more than a month previous with his own hatchet. He was charged with murder and served nine months in prison before being acquitted on May 1st, 1919, after a 10 minute jury deliberation. Yeah, so, um, not only that, but Miss Lowe became a center of a media frenzy, because that's a mistress, you know. It's not the wife of the man that was attacked, that was a mistress. So, there was scandals, there was everything. It was just crazy. Um, Now, of course, you know, like, his legal wife came, and that was a whole other thing. So, they questioned her as well, you know, like, all this kind of stuff, and, you know, Despite all of that, um, she did, like I said, she passed away August 5th, 1918, just two days after they performed that surgery to repair her partially paralyzed face. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, so that was their, their story. Um, that's crazy. I feel like, it's funny because, like, let, let's just recap here the man had letters in German, Russian, and Yiddish, blah, 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 whatever, but I don't know, like, he never said that he actually attacked, and he couldn't really attack himself with a hatchet, so, I mean, how could she attack him? I mean, then you're gonna have multiple people in the, in the scene, like, what, somebody came and helped him hit himself? I mean, you know, that could happen, but I don't know. So, I think, I think maybe she was just upset or something. I'm not really sure, but she passed away. He, he lived on. So, um, number three, Anna Schneider. All right, guys, let's take a little break. Uh, go to the bathroom, get some snacks and a drink, do whatever you got to do. Uh, come back and we're going to finish the episode. So, um, Anna, she was attacked in the early evening hours of August 5th, 1918. Um, now, unfortunately, she was eight months pregnant. Um, a 28-year-old of Elmira Street awoke to find a dark figure standing over her, and she was bashed in the face repeatedly. Um, Her scalp had been cut open and her face was completely covered in blood. Uh, Miss Schneider was discovered after midnight by her husband, Ed, who had been returning late from work. Um, Schneider claimed that she remembered nothing of the attack and she gave birth to a healthy baby girl two days after the incident. Thank God. Um, Her husband told police that nothing was stolen from the home besides maybe like six or seven dollars that had been in his wallet. Now. The windows and doors of the apartment appeared to have not been forced open. Authorities came to the conclusion that the woman was most likely attacked with a lamp that had been on a nearby table. James Gleason, who police said was an ex-convict, was arrested shortly after Schneider was found. Gleason was later released due to the complete lack of evidence and stated that he originally ran from authorities because he had you know, been arrested before, and he was like, oh crap, what did I do now? So, um, lead investigators began to publicly speculate that the attack was related to the previous incidents involving the Magios and Bessemer and uh, Lowe, and a day after the Schneider attack, a newspaper printed a headline that asked the question that many city residents had been asking each other for months, and it was, is an axeman at large in New Orleans. So, this one, to break it down, I'm not really sure. Um, I feel like the police are just going to snag any local, you know, criminal <laughs> that's around the area and try to, you know, be like, you did this kind of thing just because they have a criminal history. Um, especially back then, they just wanted, you know, they probably didn't want a serial killer on the loose in New Orleans and they just were grabbing people, Right. Excuse me, same thing happened the last case, right? So, I don't really know, like, if this was going to be, if this is related to the Axemen in New Orleans. Just in my opinion, because the MO is, like, not there. Like, I feel like maybe, for one, for them not to have a forced entry, you know what I'm saying? Like, did that person have a key? Was something left unlocked? Did she let somebody in? Did, I mean, like, what happened? You know, because the Axemen of New Orleans, you know, chiseled the doors open. Like, there was forcible entry on those particular murders that happened. And a razor or an axe was used each time. There was never, like, a, a left hand, like, oh, shoot, they don't have this. Like, you know, I don't know. So let's move on. That's just food for thought. Um, Let's go to Joseph Romano. Joseph Romano. So he was an elderly man. He lived with his two nieces, Pauline and Mary Bruno. Now, this was August 10th, 1918. The nieces awoke to a commotion in the room where their uncle was staying, it was like adjoining rooms. Upon entering the room, the sisters discovered their uncle had a really serious head injury, which had uh, resulted in two open cuts. And they saw the assailant fleeing from the scene. And they were able to say that he was a dark-skinned, heavy-set man who wore a dark suit and a slouched hat. Now, Romano, he was seriously injured. Um, you got, you got to think this man is elderly as well. Um, he was able to walk to by himself to the ambulance once it came. Unfortunately, two days later, the head injury was just too severe and he did pass away. Um, the home was absolutely ransacked. No items were stolen, though. Um, they found the bloody axe in the backyard, discovered the panel in the back door been chiseled away like the other, com- you know, confirmed axe murders Um The Romano murder created a state of extreme chaos in the city. Everybody was constantly scared. Um, Police received a crap ton of reports in which citizens claimed to have seen an axeman lurking in New New Orleans neighborhoods. Excuse me. Um, A few men even called to report they found axes in their backyard. Um, Now, John Dantonio. Dantonio? Yeah. We're going to go with it. We're going to go with it. A then-retired Italian detective made public statements in which he um, had a theory, right, that the man who committed the axe murders was the same as the murderer in 1911. Like, the first thing that I said, like, in the beginning of the episode. We don't really know, though. They never really confirmed any of that, but that was just his theory. So, the retired detective, you know, went through the similarities, the manner, um... Of which the homicides have been committed as a reason to assume that they have been conducted by the same person now he also described the potential killer as an individual of dual personalities who killed without motive kind of almost like a dr jekyll and mr hyde kind of thing um he said that that person could also very likely have been a normal law-abiding citizen um, who was often overcome by an overwhelming desire to kill, and he, you know, he just dis- he described it as the real life Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, like I said. So, yeah. Um, now let's just recap real quick. The ones earlier, um, I don't really know. They never really, you know, um, confirmed the ones earlier like in 1911 or whatever. Um but this is just my theory here. I believe the Magios I feel like they're probably a part of the Axmen's of uh, like the murder. They were actually murdered by the Axemen. Um eh. the Lewis and um his mit- his mistress I feel like maybe they were as well, so that's two for me. I feel like um, the Anna Schneider. I don't really think that was a part of. Um, I don't really think that was a part of the Axman murders. That's just my opinion because the M O is just not there. Like she had been pretty much beaten with a lamp, versus almost decapitated and hit with a freaking axe in the head. You know what I'm saying? And she survived. So I don't really know about that one. Um, Romano, I feel like that one was. But I also don't feel like this was just a one person thing. I feel like maybe it was like um, maybe a two. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. We'll get there. We'll get there. But let's move on. So um, this one's going to be about Charles and Rosie. And um, Mary, it was like a little family. So, just trigger warning: there's children involved. Um, this is about the Cortemigla Cortemigla family. Um, so, Charles was an Italian immigrant who lived with his wife uh, Rosie and infant daughter Mary on the corner of Jefferson Avenue and Second Street in Gretna, Louisiana. Um, A New Orleans suburb across the Mississippi River. On the night of March 10th, 1919, screams were heard coming from their residence. Um, Grocer Orlando Giordano rushed across the street to investigate um, upon his arrival. I'm not laughing at what's happening. I'm laughing because I'm having a horrendous time pronouncing names sometimes. Um, anyway, so upon his arrival, he noticed that Charles, the wife and the daughter had all been attacked by an unknown intruder. Now, Rosie stood in the doorway with a serious head wound, clutching her deceased daughter. Um, Charles laid on the floor, bleeding profusely. The couple was rushed to Charity Hospital, where it was discovered that both had suffered skull fractures. Nothing was stolen from the house a panel on the back door had been chiseled away and a bloody axe was found on the back porch of the home. Charles was released two days later while his wife, excuse me, his wife remained in the care of doctors. Now upon gaining full consciousness, Rosie made claims that um, Orlando Giordano and his 18 year old son, Frank were responsible for the attacks. Now, um, Orlando, um, the 69-year-old man, wasn't too poor of a health to have committed the crimes. Um, And Frank, he was more than six feet tall, weighing over 200 pounds, would have been too large to fit through the panel on the back door. I don't really know if I believe that. I don't know about that. I don't know. I don't know. I would have to see the actual back door panel, whatever. Um, There's a will, there's a way. But no pointing fingers. I'm just saying. Um, Charles denied. His wife's claims, yet police nonetheless arrested the two and charged them with murder because that's what they do. They always just grab people and be like, you! You're guilty of this. You're going to prison. So, um, I feel like they would have been like, yeah, you see? I don't know. Anyway, uh, the the men would later be found guilty. Frank was sentenced to hang, and his father was sent to life in prison. Charles divorced his wife after that trial. So, that man... Uh, like, he refused the claims. Like, he just did not agree with them, obviously, because he divorced his wife after everything they've been through. I was like, no, no, no. I'm not going to be with you after this. Now, almost a year later, Rosie announced that she had falsely accused the two out of jealousy and spite. Bitch, what you jealous over? What you jealous over? I don't understand. I don't understand, but she did. Um, Her statement was the only evidence against the pair, and they were released from jail shortly thereafter. I would be so pissed. I would be suing her. Oh my god, I would have sued her. Anyway, um, yeah. She would have been sued if that was me. What the heck? I hate people who do that crap. You people that falsely accuse people uh, aggravate the piss out of me. Um, anyway, so, Rosie survived. Now, Mary, the daughter, she was two. Um, She was killed while sleeping in her mother's arms with a single blow to the back of the neck when she and her parents were attacked. Um, So, she was the only one out of the three that did not survive. Yeah. So, that's very sad. So, we're moving on. We got, I think, three more. Um, So, the next one is going to be Steve Boca. So, Steve was a grocer who was attacked in his bedroom as he slept by an axe-wielding intruder on August 10th, 1919. Boca awoke um, during the night to find a dark figure looming over his bed. Upon regaining consciousness, Boca ran to the street to investigate the intrusion and found that his head had been cracked open. The grocer ran to the home of his neighbor, Frank Um where he had lost consciousness and collapsed. Nothing had been taken from the home. Yet, once again, the panel on the back of the door um, of the home had been chiseled away. Now, Boca recovered from his injuries, but could not remember any details of the trauma. This attack took place after the emergence of the infamous Axeman's letter. So, I am going to go ahead and say... Um, Wikipedia lied to me. These ain't murders. Um, not everyone had passed away due to the attacks. So, I will apologize. That was misleading. Wikipedia lied to me. And I read these and I didn't think anything of it. Um, because I was trying to put everything together. And, yeah. So, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Some of these aren't murders. Some of these are just attacks. And you know what? We're human. We make mistakes. But, um... Again, they, you know, this person survived the attack. But my thing is, you know, like, uh, I don't know. That's just crazy because like March and then August. So that means, you know, that the, the killer had took one, two, three, like a four month break. Is that what, is that what this is telling me? Because there was no other attacks between the Cortamigula family and Boca, so does that mean they just went on a hiatus for four months? Anyway, um, next we have Sarah Lumen Lawman. That um, she was attacked September third, nineteen nineteen. Neighbors came to check on the young woman who had lived alone. Broke into the home when she did not answer. They discovered the 19-year-old laying unconscious on her bed, suffering from a severe head injury and several missing teeth. The intruder had entered the apartment through a window this time and attacked the woman with a blunt object. A bloody axe was discovered on the front lawn of the building. Um, Sarah recovered from her injuries, yet couldn't recall any details from the attack. And the very, 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 very last attack that ever happened that was recorded was Mike Pepitone, um, who was attacked October twenty seventh, 1919. His wife was awakened by a noise and arrived at the door of his bedroom just as a large ax welding man was fleeing the scene. Mike Pepitone had been struck in the head and was covered in his own blood. Blood splatter covered the majority of the room, including a painting of a Virgin Mary uh, Miss Pepitone, the mother of six children, was unable to describe any characteristics of the killer, and the Pepitone murder was the last of the alleged axman attacks. So I do believe he did pass away. Um, I could not find otherwise, and yeah. So yeah, guys. Um, let's kind of let's kind of look at a timeline between the murders here, um, just to kind of see. What kind of gaps and stuff we can find, um, kind of like that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not saying this is like an accurate, but just based on the information that we have that we just went over. Um, let's see if there was like a a a break time that they took each time. So let's let's look into that real quick. Okay. Don't know if this means anything, but just looking at our timeline here, we have. Um, in 1918, we have May 23rd, June 27th, August 5th, and August 10th for his attacks or her attacks, his attacks, whatever, their attacks. There we go. So what I find weird is there's also four attacks in 1919. Um, no more, nor less four each year. So March 10th, August 10th, September 3rd, and October 27th being the last one. So, there was four in 1918, four in 1919, possibly some in 1911, but that's never been confirmed. And if so, that's a long-ass time before 1918 when things really started getting going. Um, so, let's see. So, May 23rd, next month, done another one, June 27th. There was a month of, like, silence between June and August. The next one. So, then August the 5th. And then, you know, 10 days later, August the 10th. So, that was it for 1918. Then 1919 comes along. Right? There was an absence of anything going on between uh, August 10th, 1918. And the next attack, March 10th, 1919. So, that means that they went from August, so that is one, two, three, four, five, six, six months of a break. I say a break, but you know what I mean, of silence um between the, you know, between the last one in nineteen eighteen to the first one in nineteen nineteen. So there was six months of nothing. And then all of a sudden March 10th, 1919 comes along That's the first one of that one, of that year, right? And then four months go by, nothing. And then August 10th, September 3rd, the final one, October 27th. So what the heck were they doing in those periods of time? Any theories? Any theories would be appreciated. So you got a month break. And then a six month break, and then a four month break. Like, what the heck? What the heck were they doing? They just like disappeared for those times, like incognito. Like, what? What do you guys think that you know that the murderer was doing the entire time for that for that those periods, specific periods? Um, let us know. Let us know. Hit us up on Facebook, Instagram. Let's move on to the af- aftermath. So, the aftermath of the Axemen. After the last killing of Mike Pepitone, yes, he did pass away, on October 27th, 1919, the Axemen vanished. Never attacked again. Nothing ever else ever happened. Um, that was the last murder attributed to the Axemen. Now, of course, police work back then was pretty shoddy, so is that really true? We don't know, because if he went to another state, they're not going to be really looking outside of Louisiana, you know what I mean? So, we don't really know if that's true, but in New Orleans, that was the last one they ever had, right? Now, like other crimes, like his other crimes, the murder has never been solved. The attacks never solved. It was almost as if the cruel attacks had been committed by a supernatural being, by a demon from the hottest hell, as what he would call himself, Um, as the letter from the Axeman had put it. Many men had been charged. Not all of them had been set free. Um, So, if one of them was the Axeman, and they were arrested and they were put in prison and the murders and attacks just stopped bingo is his name right but if not like if they were all arrested before the last one and that last one still occurred eh? you know probably moved states or something now, no clue of the identity of the killer had ever been found. Who was the Axeman? Had there been one or more or several or what? Um, had each attack been the work of a different person or had there been several killers at work? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Now, a theory was that Mumfrey, guy that we had talked about earlier, right? So, Um, his name, Joseph Mumphrey, um, we'll talk about him and, like, his story and all that kind of stuff, so we'll get into that now. So, more than a year after the Axeman's final murder, New Orleans police learned of a strange occurrence in L.A. At first, the news seemed, you know, almost unbelievable, but later they seemed almost too anxious to believe the story. Now, on December 2nd, 1920, a former New Orleans man named Joseph Mumphrey was shot to death in Los Angeles. He was walking down a busy street one afternoon when a woman in a black and heavy veil, heavily veiled um, outfit stepped from the doorway of a building with a revolver in her hand. She emptied the revolver into Mumphrey who fell dead on the sidewalk. The woman stood over him, still holding the gun, making no effort to escape. The woman was taken to the police station. At first, she would only say that her name was Esther Albano. She would not reveal the reason why she killed Mumphrey, but days later, she had changed her mind and confessed that she was Mrs. Mike Pepitone, right? The widow of the last victim of the New Orleans Axemen. She explained why she shot Mumphrey. And she stated, he was the axeman. I saw him running from my husband's room. I believed he killed all of those people. So she believed that that was the New Orleans axeman. And that's why she shot him. So the New Orleans police were immediately drawn into the case. They knew a lot about Mumphrey. He had a criminal record and had spent quite a bit of time in prison. Dates were checked carefully. He had been released from a prison term in 1911. Coincidence, right? Um, Just before the early slaughters of the Shambaras of Crutti and Rossetti cases that may have linked in the earlier crimes of the Axemen. Then, he had been sent back to jail on other charges and was freed just weeks before the Maggio attack began. Um now was the latest series of murders and attacks. You know, in between August 1918 attacks and March 1919 on the court of, uh, Corta Migilis, I can never say their last name, bear with me. Um he had been in jail on burglary charges. <laughs> burglary charges. Now I'm not going to be able to talk be serious. Um, it was known that Mumfrey left New Orleans just after the slaying of Mike Pepitone. The timeline seemed to fit, but it was almost too perfect. Despite the dates, there was no evidence to say that Mumfrey was indeed the Axeman. As news- newspapers pointed out, the dates might just be a coincidence. There is no coincidences. I'll just go ahead and say that. That's just my belief. No coincidences. Um, he might have been the man who killed Mike, um, but the rest was just kind of, like, up in the air. Um, so, Miss Papatone was tried in L.A. court in April. Uh, she entered a guilty plea, and the proceedings were brief. Her attorney claimed that it was a justifiable homicide, and while this was disregarded, she did have the sympathy of the court. Um, she was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but sev- served less than three And she subsequently vanished into history after that. Had the murder of Joseph Mumphrey solved the Axeman murders? Eh, probably not, since it seemed unlikely, you know, that this neatly wrapped ending of the story ever happened at all. Now, it seems that the entire story, including that Joseph Mumphrey had ties to the Mafia extortion rings, may have been the result of poor research, misunderstandings, and one author after the next passing on original flawed research. Now, recent research has revealed that there are no police or public court records in New Orleans nor Los Angeles that ever mentioned a man named Joseph Mumphrey, or even Momphrey um, having been assaulted or killed in Los Angeles. In addition, you know, other investigators have failed to find any records of Miss Papaton being arrested, tried, or convicted for killing a man named Humphrey. So, here is what has been found in subsequent research. On April 11, 1922, Miss Esther Albano of Reno, Nevada, was tried for the murder of Leon Menfree. On April 11, 1922, after she shot him in self-defense after he entered her home and demanded $500 under a death threat. She testified that she believed the man was responsible for the dispa- excuse me, disappearance of her husband, Angelo Albano, and she was acquitted at the trial. In 1940, a woman named Esther Pepitone Albano Albano, excuse me, um, died in New Orleans of natural causes. It appears that the Nevada murder case was somehow confused with the New Orleans Axman's crimes, perhaps due to the inaccurate records at the time, of course. Um, we cannot say if Esther Pepitone Albano was related to the Axeman victim, Mike Pepitone, although her death in New Orleans may be suggestive. Um, in any case, the women in Nevada blamed... Leon Menfree, not Mumfrey, Menfree, for the disappearance of her husband, Angelo Albano, who was not an Axeman victim. There, at least for now, the matter rests as it began as a mystery. So, the 1911 murders. Let's take a look, right? The Joseph Mumfrey connection may have turned out to be a dead end, But what about other possible suspects in the murders? In the beginning of the case, many of police detectives drew parallel between the current Axman murder and a series of attacks on Italian grocers in 1911. At the time, most believed that the 1911 murders were linked to the New Orleans Mafia and Black Hand extortion plots. But what if they weren't? In 1911 and 1912, axe murders left more than four dozen people slaughtered in their sleep across portions of Louisiana and Texas. All of the victims were asleep. Many of them were dismembered and even decapitated by a killer welding an axe. Uh, while those murders appeared to be religiously driven, purifying the white race against what the killer saw as an incursion by African Americans, Many have noted the similarities between the murders in New Orleans and what were known as the mulatto axe murder. Um, were, were they also connected to the Axemen? It's pretty unlikely, but, you know. Um, also, the second source that I said in the beginning of the episode, they have also wrote a separate bo- blog about the murders um, that we just talked about, like, right here. The 1911 and 1912. Um... They wrote a blog about that as well. Um, That's where I've gotten this information. So just make sure you go check out their websites. It's actually really, really good. Um, And just so we can be sure we give them um, the credit, um, Troy Taylor Books dot blogspots.com if you go there there's a lot of stuff on the website so just go check it out because i thought it was very interesting and that's why i decided to share the information with you so um we'll talk about one other thing real quick uh which is jake bird um some researchers have connected a convicted murderer and self-confessed serial killer to the axeman legend Bird was eventually tried and executed for the axe murders of Bertha Cludet Cludet, and her daughter Beverly June Cludet, which took place in Tacoma, Washington, on October 30th, 1947. A criminologist who studied him before his execution came to believe that he may have killed as many as 46 people. That's insane. 46 people. Survivors of the Axman attacks had stated that their killer was a large white man, which seems to rule out our bird, who was an African-American man. But some researchers have still insisted that he is a suspect. Now, let me just stop. Um, before anybody says anything, police can be obviously racially motivated. Um, I am very well aware of that. So, especially back in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, if they had to say anybody, more than likely it was gonna be an African American person, whether it be female, male, whatever. Um so for them trying to blame him for the other things, I would have to see sufficient evidence. Just because he killed two people in the same kind of MO does not mean that this man had went through New Orleans and destroyed families. I don't know. Either way, the man's a monster. No matter no matter what color he is. He killed people, and he's a monster. (laughs) So, um, now, his story, um, pretty much after his conviction was announced, Bird was allowed to make a final statement. This man spoke for 20 minutes, noting that his request to represent himself had been denied and that his own lawyers were against him. And then he added, quote, I'm putting the Jake Bird hex on all of you who had anything to do with my being punished. Mark my words, you will die before I do. End quote. Now, Louisiana, hoodoo voodoo city. Um, I completely believe all that. And you know what? I don't want to mess with it. And it, coincidentally, okay, there were six people connected with this trial who died after that. Just saying, I don't mess with that. I don't disrespect disrespect people who mess and doodle in that. I don't. nope. I'm a good person. I am nice to people. I do good things. You know, like I, I uh, uh, uh no. So anyway, um, and that's also why I don't work in you know that kind of work. I don't want people coming after me or hexing me. <laughs> like, no, thank you. Um, anyway, so, coincidentally, six people died. Uh, not, not laughing at that, but that's just creepy. Um, after the trial, you know, uh, Judge Edward D. Hodge heart attack within a month of sentencing him to death. Um, as did one of the officers who took his first confession. A police officer who took the second confession died. As did the court's chief clerk and one of Byrd's prison guards. J.W. Seldon, one of Byrd's lawyers, sorry, not screaming here, died on the first anniversary of his sentencing. So this man definitely, in my opinion, did hex those people and, um, yeah, yep, they all, they all pieced out, um, which is crazy. It, sorry, it just blows my mind. <gasps> but yeah, so he hexed them, in my belief. And, yeah, they they all passed away before he was passed away, right? So. Now, um, the execution at the Washington State Penitentiary was scheduled for January 16, 1948. But Byrd claimed he had committed 44 other murders, which he was willing to help the police solve. Like they always do, you know. They're like, eh, but if I help you solve these, I can... Delay my death sentence. Anyway, uh, Washington Governor Monrad C. Walgren granted him a 60-day reprieve. Now, police from other states interviewed Byrd and 11 murders were substantiated. He was knowledgeable enough about the 33 other murders to be considered a prime suspect. The interviews with Byrd enabled the police departments of many states to declare many unsolved murders as solved. In addition to his Washington state murders, the transient Bird apparently had killed people in Florida, Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Michigan, Nebraska, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. He mostly preyed on Caucasian women. Um, Bird had dispatched his victims with an axe. And now let me just say, it should be noted that none of those murders that he admitted to or did included any of the New Orleans Axeman victims. Just saying. He was a serial killer, and he was twisted, and he was sick, but they had no sufficient evidence to link him to being the New Orleans Axeman. So... Now, during his reprieve, Byrd attempted to appeal his death sentence and, of course, it was denied. Um, He was hung on the morning of July 15th, 1949, and buried in an unmarked grave in the prison cemetery. Now, who was the Axeman? Let's hit up some theories. So, while many New Orleans residents of the early 1920s were willing to believe the studies that the Axemen had been murdered in Los Angeles, most were not. Most dismissed this idea um, that they had been in the mafia murders as well. Now, Detective D'Antonio stated that the crimes never fit the mafia pattern. The mafia did not attack anyone but Italians, and they were never women. Like, they don't murder women. Um, The axemen had a signature, the modus operandi, in the attacks was the method of entry through a chiseled hole in the door. And the weapon used in the attacks, an axe or straight blade, Um, the weapon, but mainly an axe, the method of entry into the home's pretty much was quite puzzling. Um, It would have taken a lot of work to chisel a panel from a door and then leave a very small space to crawl through. Uh, Many have claimed that the openings were too small for a grown man to pass through. Um, But in my opinion, you know, not every man has to be huge. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, they could be like my size. I'm like 5'2 and like 110. Like, I probably could squeeze her a hole too. So, not every man has to be crazy huge. Um, Now, robbery was never a motive in the attacks. Money and jewelry was always left behind. The majority of attacks were against Italian-Americans, leading some to believe that it was racially motivated, as we said before. Um, Since many of the victims were grocers, some wondered if the attacks were mafia hits conducted to pressure the businesses into paying protection taxes. Now, leading detectives at the time dismissed this idea, of course. Um, have pointed out most of the attacks seemed to target women and could have been sexually motivated, um, especially given the fact that the Axemen seemed to only kill males when they obstructed his attempts to murder the women. A sexual motive to the crime seems to fit with Dan Antonio's theory that the killer had like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of thing, um hiding his compulsions until, you know, the need overcame him and forced him to attack again. Now perhaps the axemen just killed for pleasure or just had no motive at all. Now again, we return to the majority of victims being Italian grocers. Why those certain people? Did they hate Italians? Did they hate grocers or just Italian grocers? Did the Axemen want to kill all the grocers in New Orleans? And if so, we come full circle again. What about the victims that were not Italian grocers? There's a lot of questions, right? We'll never know any of the answers. Um, he did flee the scene super quick. Um, now, now, granted, people did see him maybe like twice, three times, I don't really know. Um, but he was, he was really quick. He got away really quick. Um, and the fact that the door holes that he used to enter the homes were unusually small led the citizens You know, to wonder if the Axeman was even human or if, as his infamous letter stated, he was, quote, the worst demon that ever existed in either fact or a realm of fantasy. Now, all that we can say for sure is that the Axeman vanished from New Orleans in 1919, never to return, nothing ever happened again, never solved, nothing. Kind of like Jack the Ripper, just vanished. Came, done his work, vanished, right? The X-Men came, you know, disappeared without a trace, and has ultimately become one of the great mysteries of American crime. So, I don't know. like, that, um, that Jake Bird was kind of close, but I feel if that Mumphrey guy was actually a person, maybe he just didn't have any history written in the books, I feel like if Joseph Mumphrey was actually a person and that, you know, that person was not wrong about, um what was it, like Miss Peptone, I feel like if that actually happened, I feel like that would have solved the Axman murders. I feel like he probably was it, but we'll never know. So, Yeah. Uh, don't forget, guys, we have started doing it every other week as far as podcast episodes go. Every week was kind of like uh, crazy <laughs> for me. Um, scheduling and it being summer and all that kind of stuff. I'm trying to spend more time with my fiance and all that kind of stuff. Relax a little bit more. But I'm, we're going to start doing it every other week. So make sure you tune in. On the 15th of this month of August, I can't believe it's already August, but August the 15th, we'll do another episode. Um, yeah, Instagram today, it was kind of sucky. I ain't gonna lie. We didn't really have a lot of photos. There's not like crime scene photos. There's a little bit of maps and some news articles, but there's not really anything too exciting that I could find a post for you guys. Um, but also make sure you go to Instagram and check out the missing person spotlight for this week. Um, that one, the case that I posted missing persons, a little bit older, um, older of a case, but just, you know, go on, check it out. You never know. You never know. Could unlock a memory for someone. So yeah, just go check it out make sure you check us out on Facebook as well. The tap us in. More of a curiosity, a true com podcast, you'll see our coffin logo. Click on it, join us, and let's discuss the Axemen of New Orleans. So have a great day, guys. Have a good week and a good weekend. See you in a week. Well, guys, that's all for today's episode make sure you tune in bi-weekly we are every other monday for another riveting case where i will traumatize you more than you probably already are (laughs) so thank you for listening uh don't forget to check out the instagram at morbid period curiosity period tc podcast for photos related to each case that i cover Feel free to send me spooky, crazy stories or case suggestions at morbidcuriositytcpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate the podcast on Spotify and Apple Pod or whatever you're listening to us on. Um, I do appreciate all you spooky listeners. Please stay kind, stay spooky, and for the love of God, don't murder anyone.